Hey there, John. I think we are underway. How are you? Hi, Glenn. I am exhausted, but I'm fine. How are you? Doing well. Over here in Providence, Massachusetts at Brown University, Glenn Lowry, The Glenn Show with John McWhorter, my regular conversation partner, bi-weekly here at The Glenn Show. Me and John have been doing it for a long time. The Black Guys. Uh, you can find us at substack.com. You can also find the YouTube channel, uh, Glenn Lowry Show. So uh, tuning in to an ongoing conversation. John is the man of the hour, however, I must say. His book, Woke Racism. Uh, and then I don't get the subtitle. Um, it is how a new religion has be- is betraying Black America. Mm-hmm. Notice the fatigue with which John recited the subtitle of his book. I think my <laughs> man is weary of being on the road, <laughs> promoting yeah, the know, book, talking man, about the like- book, being interviewed about the book. <laughs> You know, Glenn, I have to announce something, actually. I, I need Do to you? say this right What's here. What's that? Um, yeah. For those who are watching this, I am immensely gratified that people have wanted to interview me about woke racism. It's been, it's been a ride. I learn a lot from each show. But you know, folks, there are a lot of podcasts out there these days. And I'm glad because it means we have a healthy, contesting <laughs> democracy. But there are a lot of podcasts. And Folks, you have to understand, it used to be that if people wanted you to be on their radio show, they wanted 15 minutes. But all of you who have podcasts, you know, you have every right to. You want to talk to somebody for an hour. And I have to say, folks, that after this tour, with all the people who I've booked at this point, I'm finished. And I won't be taking any more offers to do podcasts about the book Woke Racism. I've got them way up practically to Christmas. There will be no more. And so please understand, if you don't get a response from me when you ask, it's not because I don't like your podcast. It's that I'm a human being. And after you get up to about 100, you've had enough. And so I thought I, maybe I'd say this here because it seems to get out there. To well, it is an efficient way of saying no preemptively and uh, also making people aware that they ought not to expect a response to any specific query. And I, can, I feel you, my brother, smart. as they say. I feel you. You know, I know where you're coming from. I understand what you're saying. You know how this is. You yeah. could spend a whole lot of time. And I mean, in that time, you're never going to get it back. That's just going to be time gone. That's your life. That's. Uh... And, you know, we have other we have other stuff that we have to do as well. I mean, I, I want to reiterate, I am flattered. I am happy people want to talk to me. I wouldn't want the opposite. But I just need everybody to know that. I can't do interviews about woke racism into next summer. I there's a limit. It's a certain so, amount of humility, you, humility, but also a pragmatic. Uh, you know, you have to yeah. say no. All right, John. Yeah. Well, uh, we won't be asking you to be interviewed here at the Glenn Show about woke racism since. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think the book was conceived, and many of the arguments were developed in conversation here at the Glenn Show. If I do say so myself, they were. That's right. Uh, but we are here, and uh, we did have an agenda. Uh, our agenda was to consider what, if anything, we make of the concept of structural or systemic racism. I'm going to take those as synonymous. Um, it was occasioned this topic by, uh, in our earlier conversation, me recalling interaction with one of my students whom John named Simone, as he is wont to do. He's wont to affixing names to <laughs> characters. People have, and, to have names, yeah. Um, She's a woman of color in my class who wrote very vigorously counterpunching to the line of argument that I had been developing about racial inequality in the class, which I would not attempt to recount here. The broad outlines of which people who follow The Glenn Show will be familiar with. But in any case, she was basically saying, I don't want to rehash the whole thing. What happened to the guy who wrote The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, published in 2002, and seemed to be understanding that there were deep structural systemic uh, forces at play that were implicated? You coined the term racial stigma in your book. You didn't coin the term, of course, but you embodied it. You, You made it a central concept in your argument. Biased social cognition was one of your, you know, uh, uh, catchphrases because you had this idea that uh, if people didn't see the racial inequality as being produced by forces over their political control, they would impute those differential results to intrinsic unfitness of black people. You, you seem to be aware of all of that. And now more lately, she says, and, you know, people who follow the Glenn show know 
you talk about personal responsibility, you, you, you talk about uh, 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 pathology and dysfunction, you've all this about the black family, this and criminal behavior, that and so forth and so on. And um, I'm, I'm disappointed. And she said that artfully and she said it at length and, and with, uh, with force. And I was moved by that. Moved to try to construct a, a, a response to, to that particular student, but also to myself in terms of trying to square, you know, did I give any quarter whatsoever to structural racism? I'm talking about me. You can talk about you. But my take on it was, oh, this is a catchphrase that the latter-day anti-racism, Ibram X. Kendi, Ta-Nehisi loving type, Colts, Ta-Nehisi Colts loving types, excuse me, are, are coming up with. It's a cover. You know, it, it's, it's a playing with words. It's a bluff. Uh, you know, they don't really have arguments. You know, I was very disparaging and dismissal of, of, the, of the notion in some of my um, later writing, and she was trying to force me to square my uh, arguments uh, uh, given their apparent uh, inconsistency. But that occasion, uh, me to mention that to you, John, and you had some stories of your own, did you not, uh, or at least some doubts about uh, whether people understood where you stand on, on the issue? Well, yeah, I, um, it's always striking how people, and I do this too, have a narrative, have a, a, a a through line that they see that doesn't budge despite evidence. And we all have stories that we need to tell to perceive the world. We can't start from the beginning with every single thing we see. You have to apply patterns, but that also applies to the sorts of things that people like you and me say. And with all due respect, I think that I make it clearer than you do sometimes, because I think we feel differently about some of these things that I know that these racial inequities exist. And I'm the one who's on here defending, quote unquote, Omar, et cetera. And yet I can tell there's a certain kind of person who thinks they're hearing me out, but comes away thinking that I don't know what systemic racism is and that my message is everybody needs to just shape the fuck up. I can see that that's what a lot of people think. And I think it's partly my demeanor. And I think it's partly because we all have to bring stories to things. And people think, Republican, conservative, neither of which is true, but I see why they think that. So he's making the bootstrapped argument. And I can tell that no matter what I actually say, no matter what the substance is, they come away thinking that. Every time I read of somebody saying he thinks systemic racism doesn't exist, I always think to myself, I've never given any indication of that. And I think that that is something that happens with both you and me and other people who are like us in that it's not that we sound like we don't know what it is as much as that they're expecting us to know, not know what it is, that they kind of like the idea of correcting somebody who doesn't know what it is. And so we end up being useful to them in their quest to help enlighten the world, which itself is an innocent thing. But um, yeah, and that's just the way things are. And I don't mean poor little me, that we are all of us misinterpreted in all sorts of ways, but it's there. And it's not that, frankly, nobody could miss those inequities. The issue is, where you think they come from, and what you think should be done about them. Now, the fact that they're called systemic racism, I think, is clumsy. That doesn't mean I don't think that things exist. I just wish it wouldn't be called racism. I think that stretches the word too far. But for many people, when you say that, it makes it sound like you're saying you don't know about the crack versus powdered cocaine laws. You don't know about redlining, and you need to be taught. It's something you've never heard about, that you don't know about you know, although I think that the effects of this are exaggerated, discrepancies in school funding between poor districts and rich districts, et cetera. So it's that, it's that kind of thing. I think to an extent, the answer to why don't you think systemic racism exists is, did you really listen to me closely? The issue is what I think we should do about it, not whether or not it exists. Okay. Right. Do you think... Do you believe that these inequities exist, for example? I will ask you this, expecting a certain answer. Yes. I mean, I don't know exactly what you mean by these inequities, but I can imagine what you might mean. I mean, we could be concrete. We could talk about school performance differences. We could talk about differences in incarceration. We could talk about differences in wealth holding or penetration of particular occupations or industries or whatever. 
But uh, I'm sitting here thinking, I, it, it seems to me you can have this, con- this conversation in two different registers. One of them is a social scientific cause effect kind of, uh, you know, explanation of big social outcomes like uh, poverty, uh, overrepresentation of blacks in crime, underrepresentation of blacks in exam schools in New York City or whatever. And then, you know, what is it? And, and so you got data, you've got counterfactuals. If this hadn't happened, then what would have happened? These kind of cause effect questions. That's one way that you could talk about this. And then did uh, Jim Crow redlining, uh, uh, employment discrimination, uh, explain uh, some uh, difference in wealth holdings of black people or did, I mean, in the big picture, slavery and its depredations explain patterns of uh, marital and childbearing behavior that might be uh, seen by some as problematic in the black community, you know, a cause and effect. But I think there's another and maybe it's more important kind of register for talking about racism and systemic racism, which is, and this is very friendly to what you just said, here we are. It's the existential, not the, not the causal explanatory, but the existential, the kind of moral. Um, what are we going to do? What, what are we black people going to do? How, how are we going to talk? How, how, how are we going to f- fashion our response to our circumstance? And if I'm facing over here, this is my objection to structural racism at some level, which is my whole politics is about a finger wag. It, it, it's about a, it's a, it's an actually saying Jacques Cues. I, I stand here, the victim of your forces. You know? Um, and when the other side of that, this is Shelby Steele, but I think he's right. When the other side of that responds, you know, oh, I don't want you to think I'm uh, insensitive. I, I don't want, you know, then that then begins a dance, then begins a certain kind of, you know, back and forth. And we see this happening um, all across the board in American cultural life. But to me, that's a spiritual dead end. And I don't mean that in religious terms. I mean it in life affirming. How do you stand with dignity and live meaningfully? Live, live uh, in a way that, that's creditable. Um, to, to cower, I mean, we can all agree with this. The wind is blowing in my face. I cower. I cower. There's, there's a reason that the word cower and cowardly are, are, are connected to it. There's no honor in that. And, and I think the prison to pipeline mass incarceration is a hatred for the black body of male whatever um, uh, shtick, that storyline, that, that narrative. It, this is quite apart from cause and effect. When, in fact, you've got criminality through the roof. You, you, you got aberrant behavior being manifest on the front page of every newspaper in every city in the country on a daily basis. So it's not just pull up your bootstraps. Please don't mi- dismiss what I'm saying and I'll stop. As it's just some trope. Pull up your bootsteps and everything's going to be okay. I'm saying stand up straight with your shoulders back. I know that's what Jordan Peterson says. Y'all can get mad at me if you want to. He's not wrong about everything. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Take responsibility for your life, for your community, for your future, for your children, for, you know. Um, and the systemic racism religion doesn't have enough room for that. Simone doesn't understand that. When you say, here I stand, the victim of your, I forget what noun you use, um, here I stand, the victim of your perfidy, the victim of the obstacles that you place. She thinks, and Simone is, a, is an avatar here, Simone thinks that that's exactly the position we're in, and she thinks it's unreasonable of you to expect that we're going to stand up straight. If you say, why can't we stand up straight, what Simone is thinking is, yeah, you stand up straight and then you're walking down the street and the cops pull you over and beat your head in because you look like some drug suspect that you're looking for. So how can you how can you stand up straight in a society that treats you that way? What's your answer to Simone? Because that's the easy answer that that person has, even when they're 20 years old. 
They do think that our job is to stand and say, we are the victim of your perfidy. They think of that as our dignity. My answer is you're not special. Everybody has wins in their face. Uh, You're privileged. You're rich. uh, You're empowered. You live in the United States of America. Uh, Of people of African descent in large numbers on this planet, we are by far the most prosperous, most powerful. Barack Obama served for eight years as president of the United States. The current sitting secretary of defense is a black man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is just what Randall Kennedy was saying when we talked with him a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'd say uh, that your ancestors actually did have a, a boulder on their shoulders. You don't. I'd say, look at what they did, notwithstanding what they had to confront. The, the world is your oyster. The streets are paved with gold. Everything is possible. Don't you see what's happening in the 21st century, I'd say. I'd say, look at the immigrants. Now, people want to preclude me saying this uh, uh, peremptorily. You can't compare blacks to the immigrants. Why can't I? Why can't I take note of what's possible in this great country? Why can't I avail myself of the example of peoples, numerous, uh, who have demonstrated what is possible in this great country? It can't possibly be true that we African-Americans are so exceptional that those achievements don't have anything to teach us about what's possible in this country. I would say, I would, I would, and, 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 you know, Simone, look at Brown University. Uh, they are four square and a hundred percent behind everything that uh, the Wolksters want to do. I'd say, I'd say, look at the 1619 project that's being taught to kids in uh, high school, et, et cetera. I, I'd say, uh, look at the cancellation up and down the line uh, of people who, you know, deviate by epsilon from, you know, some uh, mantra that you've been taught in your religion. Uh, You know, I know I can say all of that. I mean, but, uh, you know, you don't think that's going to reach Simone, do you? Professor Lowry, how come we can't just be mediocre? How come, why should we have to try harder here like a Nigerian immigrant after all we've been through? Nigerian immigrants have immigrant pluck. We've been here for 400 years and we shouldn't have to try harder. We should fight for our right to be mediocre. Woo, woo, woo. Why should we try harder? She's probably not going to. She's probably not going to. What do you have to say to that one? Is she going to explicitly affirm and embrace mediocrity? You know, she's probably going to just challenge the standard by which you're making the judgment of who is and isn't mediocre. Uh, but I'm going to say nobody's coming to save you. I'm going to say you can do that if you want to. I'm, I'm going to say, OK, forget about all this high philosophic moral stuff. Let's just talk about practical politics. Uh, what do you think that's going to get you? You just made yourself into a, a, a client. Uh, you, you just threw yourself prostrate uh, on the mercy of, of the court. You, you just uh, flopped. You, you just, you know, you've gone slack on me. Uh, and, and now the entire game is. Will they accede to your demand? You know, mm-hmm. will, will they affirm your victim status? <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'd just be repeating myself if I were to observe that that makes all of the moral agency reside in the oppressor. Mm-hmm. They become the ones mm-hmm. who are possible of, of behaving virtuously. You're simply a bobble, uh, you know, being pushed this way and that by forces over which you have no control. That, that's mm-hmm. a abject surrender. I, I don't well, see any about, dignity how, in that. How about this one? Um, I'm really playing from these people's playbook. There's the wealth gap. And my immediate sense of the wealth gap is, why would you expect there not to be a wealth gap between white and black people when it's been such a short time? since the late 1960s. The question would be why there wasn't one. And then the other question is, why is the gap considered to be too big given the amount of time that's gone by? Now, 
The fashionable answer is that the wealth gap is due in considerable part to redlining. Black people were disproportionately subject to redlining and therefore couldn't build up equity in housing. And that is one of the main reasons that there's such a wealth gap in Black America today. We don't have the housing stock to pass down the generations increasing in value. That's considered a real mic drop point. That's systemic racism, something that happened in the past that has concrete effect today. So the idea is that you're supposed to do something about that. Now, presumably, I think the idea is maybe to give an awful lot of black people either houses or the ability to get mortgages much more easily, that that would be addressing the systemic racism by by compensating for what happened in the past and evening the score now. If you're not in favor of that, then you're ignoring how unfair the redlining disproportion was. And we've talked about how most people who are redlined were white, but still there's the disproportion of black people. So Simone is thinking, if we are not getting behind some sort of radical reparations program, a la Sandy Darity, because of what happened with redlining, then we either don't know what systemic racism is or we don't care about it. What's your answer there? Well, we could look at the numbers and try to figure out what proportion of wealth holdings and the difference in wealth holdings between races can be attributed to some accountancy to the differential equity in homes. And then you've got a counterfactual because you have to try to estimate what the holding of Blacks would be but for. I mean, so there are many, you know, uh, chains of uh, interaction here. I mean, the redlining is about financial uh, underwriting. You know, it's about whether or not a mortgage is being let. So do you have to work it through the housing market and figure out, you know, that's a hard problem in and of itself. And then if you're talking about wealth, you have to do intergenerational dynamics. You have to take into account the wealth of fathers, sons and grandsons and things of this kind and who you know, bequested inheritance. And you have to look. This is how I would respond to Simone if she were a student in my class and I were an economist trying to address the question seriously. Um, I'd say you'd have to look at uh, the dynamics of wealth accumulation. And it's not just asset values passed on like housing. It's also income, savings, uh, and investments. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's going to be complicated. And what you want to ask is not what's happening today, but where will it be uh, down the line? If you like, how long will it take before the disparities would tend to diminish toward negligence if uh, you had equal opportunity for people to earn income going forward, even if they started out with a lower base because of a difference in inheritance and all of that. You'd have to argue with her about, well, are the consumption habits of people the same irrespective of race and the savings and their uh, ability to invest their money and whatnot? What about risk-taking? What about entrepreneurship, you know, et cetera? So I'm sorry, maybe I'm dodging the question in a way because I'd acknowledge the existence of redlining, but I'd say the causal connection between that and any other thing that you want to point to today is circuitous. And her eyes are going to glaze over long before I get to the end of that, uh, to that disquisition, uh, because I don't think she's particularly interested in a green eye shade accounting exercise. I, I think she's interested in casting you know, aspersions and a, a fixing responsibility. Uh, Isn't there evidence that the wealth gap is not as much as has been claimed? Hasn't Coleman Hughes actually documented that other people have shown that if you adjust for X, Y, and Z, the situation isn't as bleak as it's often depicted? Or am I mis- misremembering? No, I mean, I think there are critiques that you can bring to the standard narrative on the wealth gap, which is the median family amongst Blacks has one-tenth, one-one-hundredth, depending on how you cut it, of the wealth of the median white family. You can object to the comparison of medians uh, because that's a particular statistic of the distribution. It's the person who's at the 50th percentile of the population. Half have more, half have less. Well, if a lot of people are in debt, they have negative wealth. If a lot of people have near zero wealth, the median could be small, but that wouldn't mean that the entire distribution is piled up on zero. So then when you compare the median black and the median white, that ratio might not be at all descriptive of the real relationship between those distributions. Uh, The other point that people have made is that, um, well, you have 
a relatively few people who have a lot of wealth. I mean, the wealth distribution in the society is very skewed. So most of the disparity of wealth holdings is a disparity of wealth holdings amongst the relatively wealthy people. I mean, there, there are a good number of whites who have relatively modest wealth. They, they will, on average, be wealthier than the modestly endowed black families, but there are a good number of whites who have modest wealth. But there are some whites who have very, very substantial wealth, and there are not many at all blacks who have wealth of that degree of you know, extraordinary uh, magnitude. So you could equalize the wealth holdings of the bottom half of both populations much more cheaply then you could eliminate the overall racial wealth gap. That's, that's another way of, of putting what I just said. Most of the disparity is at the top. Uh, but there's all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, uh, what about human capital and, and earnings? I mean, uh, the Nigerians who are a relatively wealthy black population or, or the, the Asians, and that's obviously very uh, uh, heterogeneous population of people, but um, their uh, relative wealth holdings, I would bet, I haven't looked at this carefully. I don't look at this kind of stuff carefully. So if, they're, if I get this wrong, I apologize and people can correct me. But I don't think theirs is an asset uh, inheritance story at all. I think theirs is a, um, I got a PhD in an engineering discipline and I'm making $250,000 a year. Uh, or I became a physician or uh, I started a business and, uh, you know, it did relatively well kind of story. I think that's how Jewish wealth was built in this country. I think Darity would probably disagree with this because he and I discussed this briefly when I talked with him 10 years ago on this program. But um, um, I think that's the story. I think you got people pushing carts uh, and, 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 you know, selling rags and stuff. And, you know, and, and they, you know, the next thing you know, they got a little corner store and, it, you know, and, and then they you have young suburbs and you have young right. people who are all over the professional schools and law and medicine and, whatnot and and they're they're earning very upper upper middle class and they're saving and stuff like that um so uh i don't know if i were asked to engage the wealth question that's the kind of thing that i would try to take up and see i wanted you to say those things because if we pull the camera back you did sound like you were hedging for about the first three minutes but the fact that median is a completely inappropriate device for analyzing this particular question, because it leads to things that look great in news stories in terms of shoring up the elect position, but median doesn't make sense here. And then also the, um, the fact that it's really just a few people at the top where you see these huge differences and that really the soul of America is people struggling who are both white and black who are in the middle and, you know, doing well to different degrees. It's not that the typical white American is wealthy. And then also that with other groups, it's not a matter of their parents having passed on wealth to them. Their parents had a corner store and they in one generation join the professions and become people of a very different social class and start accumulating wealth. If you take those three things, then the whole idea that there's a wealth gap that is absolutely massive and that it must trace to redlining until 1968 falls apart. And what we're dealing with is a much smaller gap. So there's still a gap and we can talk about it, but the idea that it's a matter of one hundredth and the mental picture that people get is that some guy who sells insurance who's black has one hundredth the wealth of a white guy who's selling insurance because the white guy who's selling insurance has a dad who passed him on a row house somewhere. That's not accurate. That's not what the statistics show. And that's what a Simone, as you say, Again, well, again, folks, Simone is an avatar. She's not an actual person. Yeah. You try to explain these things and you can see the eyes glaze over. The idea being that that kind of detail isn't welcome. What we really want is the totemic images. But that kind of detail reveals that a lot of what we're calling systemic racism and its, its effects and its extremity is distorted. And unfortunately, to understand why, you have to do the green eye shade a bit. And you let, know, not too terribly much. It's not like you have to read a 75 page. Well, article, let, let me make one more. There's point. more on something. Excuse me. I, I, I just want to add a little bit to the green eye shade because I can anticipate the objection that people like Darity and his uh, disciples who work on this stuff would make. They'd say things like, 
Well, if we look at the typical uh, black college graduate and we compare him to the typical white high school dropout, the latter has three times or five times. I don't know what the number is. The world not is going to be at the median and, and we, we have those objections. But they're going to have a counter. They're going to say getting educated, uh, having financial literacy uh, or whatever doesn't really explain uh, the racial wealth gap. And I think there's a fallacy there. And I just want to explain why, which is intrinsically, this is a dynamic problem. That is, you have to look over time. You have to consider people's accumulation of wealth. Wealth doesn't fall from the sky. It doesn't crystallize at a point in time. It accumulates through time. What they do when they compare in a cross-section at a point in time, uh, Black Americans who have a certain level of education, white Americans who have a certain level of education, they see the wealth of the whites, lower education, higher wealth. Therefore, Blacks getting more education won't solve their problem. Well, that's, a, that's kind of a fallacy. They're trying to infer from the cross-section uh, what the consequences of the dynamic system would be. And, and they have to let it roll forward to the steady state. I mean, they have to allow the consequences to f- manifest themselves fully over time. I'll stop. I'll stop. But I, I, I just think you can't take a section of the population at a point in time comparing and infer from that what the consequences of changing the dynamic uh, uh, behavior of the system would be. I, 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 again, I apologize for the technical character of that. But precisely, Simone, this is some hard stuff. Uh, you want to do a master's in economics? I mean, you can take a whole year and we can work on this and, and, and break it down and look at it from every possible angle. Today's show sponsor is The Spectator magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free spectator hat. Just use offer code Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code Glenn. I've been aware of The Spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors, from Christopher Buckley, to P.J. O'Rourke, to Douglas Murray, to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. Then here's another one. Powdered cocaine and crack. Now, part of the motivation, correct me if I'm wrong, Glenn, because you were there in a sense that I wasn't, but powdered <laughs> cocaine was sentenced. I just mean that you, yeah, I was grown. Yeah, I know what you meant. You were, you were growner. <laughs> So I'm older than you are. <laughs> you are. You were studying it, but like powdered cocaine and crack, they came down harder on crack, partly because crack is um, was sold in out, outdoor markets, and selling of crack created the kind of violence that can help tear up a neighborhood. Whereas powdered cocaine was mainly dealt on playgrounds and in basements and partaken of there, and so there was a sense that crack is more dangerous to the urbanity than Ethan, you know, doing some lines in the bathroom in his parents' house. So there was that. And then there was also that Black leaders were behind those laws when they were initially instituted. 
Now, today, that's called just naked, you know, structural racism. It was racist that crack was cracked down on more than powdered cocaine. I have watched white guys do high fives talking about that. But was it really that simple? There's the idea that crack was more dangerous, and a lot of black people thought so, which means that the idea that it was systemic racism is much weaker than we're often told. Am I on to something there or am I missing missing that? Oh, well, it's a it's a long time ago, it feels like now. But yeah, the the crack powder disparity, a hundred to one, the weight, the minimum weight needed to trigger the mandatory minimum sentence of the crack cocaine was one one hundredth of the minimum weight for the for the powder uh, cocaine and uh, the mandatory minimum sentences did get applied in federal cases. And uh, that, that was a disparity. Uh, it's true that um, uh, many African-American representatives in the uh, Congress supported uh, the legislation uh, on that because their communities were catching hell. Um, who's the guy? Silent black majority, the the writer, a political scientist. Michael Fort Michael yeah. Fortner. Yeah, Michael mm-hmm. Fortner. Who was there? A uh, black writer. It yeah. explores this in the case of heroin in New York City and the Rockefeller drug laws in the 70s and 80s. And uh James Foreman uh at uh Yale the Law uh professor there explores the same theme in the case of Washington, DC. Uh, crack cocaine and uh, the depredations of the of the drug uh, disorder. And sure, there was push in the Black community for law enforcement because people were being affected adversely by the violence that accompanied the trade. But is that structural racism? I mean, of course, that invites the whole incarceration, mass incarceration thing. And, you know, I've I've written about this in a register, very sympathetic to structural racism arguments, saying in part because the people who were caught up in this were disproportionately Black, the larger society didn't pull back from the brink. Even if the intent were not explicitly anti-Black, the experiment, the social experiment of expanding the number in prison from 500,000 to 2 million in a quarter century, you know, which is a remarkable institutional uh, upheaval. We, we completely change the way in which we deal with social disorder and social dysfunction, ratcheting very substantially up the degree of punitiveness, which could be measured along a lot of different dimensions, including the very scale of people who are incarcerated. Of course, a rise in crime had something to do with that. And the more subtle historical analyses credit the fact that crime rates induced in the popular sentiment of a much greater tolerance for punitive uh, uh, legislation. But, you know, we overshot. I mean, I think it's a fair reading of history that we overshot. I think a lot of conservatives and people agree that we overshot. And in the aughts, we pulled back and those those numbers uh, peaked out and, and they leveled. Now, crime did come down as well. But uh, I think the sentiment against incarceration at the scale that it had reached by the late 1990s is, is pretty widespread in this society. So we pull back. But here, here's the structural racist argument that I think has to be taken seriously, which is if the racial issue hadn't been so central in crime and punishment and in the representation of Blacks within those who were really, really on the front end of the uh, of the uh, punitive regime. Would we have had a different, we collectively, the polity and the culture of the United States of America, the political culture, have had a different uh, reaction, been less tolerant of the excesses if they had been falling upon people about whom we had a greater degree of concern? I don't think that's an implausible thing to say. No, that, no. you know, racial stigma that, you know, you take the history back, roll it back, not just to the aughts or to the 90s or to the 80s, roll it back to the 50s and to the 40s. Roll it back into the 20s and to the teens. And uh, the insinuation of racial uh, uh, stereotyping, of racial derogation, of, of racial contempt, uh, you know, it, it's hard to escape that uh, in the lynching and the enforcement of Jim Crow in the South. It's hard to escape it in 
the uh, teeming cities of the Northeast and the Midwest in mid 20th century, where, you know, the, the 60s, you see what happens with the riots and stuff. You get explosion after explosion, uh, a lot of it around the law enforcement uh, type uh, issues. Uh, the Kerner Commission, et cetera. They, they were liberals, yes. They might have been a little bit starry-eyed. Yeah, but they weren't crazy and they weren't all wrong about what they were describing in terms of the ghetto of America. It was only a quarter century after uh, Gunnar Myrdal's, uh, a new, uh, The American Dilemma, which is An American Dilemma, An American Dilemma, which is a devastating uh, indictment uh, and chronicle of, uh, of racial subordination in the 1930s and the 1940s. So, you know, it's not like there's no there there. I mean, you'd have to be blind to history to, to think that uh, there was no there there. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, no one knew what the outcome was going to be. And once the outcome happened, sensitivity to it was weaker because people deep down didn't care as much about Black people. Plausible like, hypothesis. Yes. Plausible hypothesis. But I want to get at this. This is what Simone is thinking. This is what's taught to people in college. In the early 90s, were there white people who, although not explicitly, decided, let's target crack cocaine more because what hap- when black people create disorder, it's a worse thing than when white people do. Is that what was going on? Or was there another reason, such as open air violence? that crack cocaine was given the harder penalty. No, I actually because know a little something. That it was because of racism. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to have to report that I, I know way too much about crack cocaine, man. <laughs> I mean, because I used to be a crack cocaine addict in the 1980s, so I could have gotten my, myself shot dead out there on the streets of Boston, Massachusetts. And I go back to Chicago sometimes and hang out with some of my old schoolmates and stuff like that. And, you know, it was Chicago in the 1980s, not Chicago in the 2020s, because Chicago in the 2020s, You'd be going around the drug houses. You end up with a bullet in your head. Uh, but but it was a lot of cash money. Uh, very easily storable, small transactions, uh, frequent, you know, drug houses, people sliding the drugs under the door and whatnot. A lot of people walking around with guns. Um, and there was just a lot of violence. The bodies piled up. And you look at the at the murder rates in these cities in the late 80s and early 90s. It makes today look like a, a walk in the park. I mean, we're, we're still lower than the peak of the violent crime rates that were reached in, in their uh, and 1990s. this is why crack cocaine was penalized more, wasn't it? That's yeah, because of it. the violence, because of the stories that were in the newspaper, because of the, right. you know. Uh, how many yeah. drug deals gone bad and, you know, uh, multiple homicides with uh, kids in the back room can you uh, have in the newspaper before somebody says enough? In other words, it wasn't white people thinking when black people make noise, it gets on our nerves. And so we're going to penalize more because that's what Simone is taught. Well, there probably it's was some of that. I mean, the crack baby uh, hysteria, right? The, the whole cohort of black babies was going to be deficient right. because there were so many mothers on crack and there was. There was kind of hysteria about that. I, I, I'm sure you can find hyperbole and exaggeration in popular culture and certain stereotyping images that get projected and whatnot and, and uh, uh, so on. But, but a lot of the uh, response was coming from Black people in those communities themselves. And it's an interesting contrast between us because you're mentioning with you know, candor your experience with crack cocaine, it might surprise you and some of our listeners that I am hardly unfamiliar with powdered cocaine and well into my 50s. I'm I shocked. love this stuff. Shocked. And more to the point, I cannot remember a time that I partook of it that was not either underground, in the back of something, yeah, way upstairs, yeah, it's in the bathroom, it's something that you do somewhere concealed. You do not do it out on the corner. You do it, as the French say, en cachette. You're, you're hidden. That's powdered cocaine culture. And so that seems like it would have been seen as less destructive to the general polity back in 1991 than what you just talked about with the crack, where it's open air and guns and people falling down in the street. And so 
it's always seemed to me there's a difference in the way people handle crack versus the way people handle powder. And I've always known partly because of my own personal experience and many people have said it. And so that's something. And I think some people, their eyes roll, like we're getting into too much detail or we're missing something, but I would just say, what are we missing? And then you add Michael Fortner's point. And I should stress Michael Fortner is black. He is somebody who was in these communities experiencing it at the time. There were black people behind this too. And what are you calling them to say that they didn't know their systemic racism when they saw it? They were terrified by what was going on with crack cocaine, not people snorting it, you know, off of the back of their hand in their basement. That wasn't the problem. And that's the way you do powder as opposed to crack. This makes a certain sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes a certain sense, although I, I don't think it begins to exhaust the structural systemic racism territory, right? I mean, they, they're not going to just be doing powder and crack cocaine. They're, they're going to be doing everything. They're going to be doing what's on movies and in the television. They're going to be doing of where course. the highways built. You know, take a look at the 1619 Project uh, compendium, all those essays. I mean, a lot of them touch on a- areas that are uh, affected uh, by the history of of race, but that are are not, you know, uh, Oscar's so white. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the telling of the history of the story? Uh, you know, you know, with some of that, I'm loath to even get into it because no matter how the story is told, no matter what happens at the Oscars, there's always something. There's a kind of person who lives to tell a certain kind of story of their own. My favorite example, as as time passes, you start noticing things. 20 years ago, there's not a black producer in Hollywood who can green light a... Okay. Well, now we have Tyler Perry who can green light the entire world. No, that's not good enough because he's not deep. He doesn't put out films like Beloved that everybody knows aren't going to make any money because he puts out things that people actually want to see, including a lot of lowbrow things, but some things that are just, you know, good middlebrow things to use those old fashioned categories. That doesn't count. So you notice people don't say anymore. There isn't a black man in Hollywood who can green light a film because now there is one. But you just don't say anything anymore because somehow he's not good enough. It's as if it's inconvenient that there now is one. What were you expecting? There was going to be a black professor who was going to green light a movie version of the Africana encyclopedia who was going to green light all these projects that, you know, nobody would want to see. Was that really what anybody expected? No, of course it was going to first be a Tyler Perry who green lights sitcoms and extended sitcoms. But why does that not matter when he's wealthy and influential? And now when anybody black wants to do an interesting project, one of the first people they think of as someone who would have the money to back it is Tyler Perry, not good enough. And it's not an accident that then it moved to the Oscars. And then the issue is if it, it, whether the black people who win at the Oscars are the right kind, whether their facial features are actually so white that it doesn't matter. It, it just goes on and on. And so I tend to let that, that part of it go. It's just you're fighting with a phantom. But the concrete societal issues are ones where I want people to know that we're not insane or, or we're not hard-hearted. It's not like we see these things and just think everybody needs to put their chins up and, you know, face the sky and walk straight and pull up their pants and everything will be okay. Cause neither one of us has ever said that. John, they're going to, I can hear the, uh, sneers and, and, uh, you know, cajoling coming from a certain high-minded quarter of academic, uh, race, uh, critical race scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would say, oh, you're on the surface. It's all superficial stuff that you guys are talking about. Racial capitalism. They're going to be talking about uh, the, the way the system actually operates. So it's private enterprise. There's great wealth concentration, big companies. Let's put the planet to the side for a minute. But, you know, the uh, ex- exploitation of black labor, the uh, uh, creation of, of the modern world, which is built on. You know, there's this big literature now in in economic history about uh, cotton, you know, how important cotton was to the 19th century economy. There's kind of a new scholarship of American economic history that uh, is underscoring and maybe to some uh, overstating 
the, the role that cotton and therefore indirectly slavery played. In fact, there's an essay in the 1619 compendium uh, uh, to this effect. Uh, I, I forget the name of the guy that uh, I should know this, actually. But in any case, I'm just saying you guys are playing it too small is what the criticism is that I'm trying to put before you. Big systemic forces, Europe, 1500 to 1900, the modern world that we sit in right now, all based on a dynamic of exploitation and appropriation uh, and uh, the role that whiteness plays in that, uh, whiteness playing in making it possible to have both a Christian religious uh, philosophy, but also a, uh, you know, industrial scale exploitation of, of human labor on behalf of et cetera, uh, that allows you to justify the colonial, et cetera. Um, the, the racism is, uh, is uh, everywhere there uh, in the ideas of the people who carried out the acts that built the structures in which we're embedded. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, that's what I'm talking about, they'll be saying when they say I'm talking about structural racism. The making of the modern was, world on the bones of, of, of the blacks and the browns and the natives who were ground under. I, no, no. My response to that line is two things. One, suppose you had to express all those ideas without using any of the $10 words, and you had to use only words that a nine-year-old would understand. Really keep it down to about 800 words of English and rephrase all of it. No words that have a certain ring, no structure, no dismantling, none of that. Just, you know, not stri- you know, st- into structure of, no, that is a part of. Just keep it all real simple. How convinced would these people be of their own argument if they had to just speak English? I'm just, I'm just saying. And that's not that I'm not an academic and I don't use big words in my work, too. But a lot of that stuff gets by 70% on just the resonance of a word like racism. Like imagine you can't say racism, but you have to say something like white people not liking black people. Or if that's not good enough, come up with something else, but you can only use little words. I think with a lot of them, they would have a much harder time making a coherent point. And then second thing is, how many of those people would say, okay, you said all that, that is a magnificently eloquent hopelessness. Do you believe that all of that means that there's nothing that we can do now to change the lot of black people who need help short of blowing everything else, blowing everything else up and starting again. How hopeless are you? And with some of them, they would say, yeah, some of them are true revolutionaries. They think it, we take that thing in the cartoon that you push down and it blows things up. They think we just need to start all over again and all power to them. That's colorful. You need people who think that way. I get it. But with most of them, they don't think that. And so why are they saying all this? You know, it's all very ringing, but if they don't think, that it makes sense to call for all of that to be reversed somehow. If they don't think that Black America is hopeless unless those things change. I see it as a kind of over-intellectualism when you're talking about the fate of people who need help. This isn't a philosophy class. It's real life. That's what I would answer to those sorts of things. Yeah, I I just want to say it was Matthew Desmond's essay that I was trying to think of in the 1619 election on racial capitalism. And I believe Sven Beckert is the name of one of the leading right, uh, yeah. young historians yeah. mm-hmm. who's uh, pushing this cotton. Great stuff. stuff. Translate it. And I don't mean that they don't write well, but I mean, imagine if you had to say those things in a nine-year-old's terms, could you get it across? And two, is this counsel? Are you just doing analysis or is it counsel? Because what people need is, is counsel. And I would be interested to know what their answer to those questions was. Okay, well... If not structural racism, then what? I mean, um, if not systemic indictment and a look to the system for remedy, then what? You don't like pull up your bootstraps, John. I may be more, you know, willing to talk in those kind of terms, you know. Uh, I mean, that is my spiritual existential point. My, my point is nobody's coming to save us and we have to put one foot in front of the other each day with dignity, with our held, heads held high and do the best that we can and belly aching and uh, looking up toward uh, the great white, uh, you know, savior to deliver us from something is, is just an, an, an uh, undignified and 
politically uh, a hopeless posture. It's refuted by the very assumption that the system is structurally racist, that we would make, you know, appeals that are backed by what? Is it by the threat to burn it down by the guy with the box that's going to blow everything up? Is that the threat? Uh, watch out. Uh, you don't have the troops for that. You, this you, stuff is you don't have the muscle for that. It, you know, you, you have another summer like 2020 here. Let me just say this. How many summers like 2020 do you think we can take in this country before all hell breaks loose? How many times can uh, Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, lead to uh, burning, looting, and rioting en masse before you get something that you do not want to see here? Uh, and, you know, you're going to say fascism, fascism, fascism. I'm, I mean, you, really, it's not endogenous. It doesn't depend on, on what happens. The fascism is just always there and it's just lurking. Or is the backlash that you will have earned uh, if you think that getting the wrong verdict in a jury trial legitimates wholesale racial violence, the backlash that you will have earned if you go around thinking that uh, is uh, something that you might want to take into account. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I worry. I worry that another summer like 2020 and uh, you would have a hard time keeping somebody, not Donald Trump, somebody much more effective than Donald Trump, Josh Hawley, some, somebody like that, out, out of power and uh, keeping this uh, thing uh, which is this uh, reactionary uh, kind of uh, vigilantism? I'm, 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 I'm worried about it. They'll enjoy it, Glenn. Unfortunately, who is they? Enjoy it. Um, the elect, and what I mean is, if there's more of this rioting, and it really does bring out a really disgusting and concrete and widespread white alt right reaction. And I hate to say, even if some people get killed, deep down, a lot of those people would sense it as handy in demonstrating their position that racism and racist rot always lie just beneath the surface in this country. I don't mean that they would profit by it, but it's what they do. It's what they're about. They would be, I hate to see it. I hate to say it, but they would, they would be pleased to see their view borne out with actual events. There'd be a part of them that hated to see people killed or hurt or listening to evil white people saying really terrible things, but there'd be another part of them. I'm so sorry, but there'd be another part of them that would be doing high fives. And that is the situation that we're in because a lot of the people doing the high fives would be white. And that's where we are. Oh, because it confirms, it confirms their assessment of the country as fundamentally fascist. They would want fascist. And in 1980, I don't think that was the case with white people or black people, but it's gotten to the point that it's so performative that I really do think a lot of people would almost be thankful that it happened. And that's part of what motivates me to continue being part of this general conversation, because I think that there's something a little, no, don't say sick, because that makes it sound like I think that people are crazy. But I think it's an illness in the psychosocial fabric of the country, that there are a lot of people who would sense it as handy to see their view borne out by actual events like that. They'd see it as a teaching moment. And I would see it as dismaying and as truly hurting people who didn't deserve it. Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we've only uh, scratched the surface in a way, I imagine, of, of what this conversation could be. Uh, I don't think so. You think I think this has been a very handy response to Simone. We have covered covered the ground. The blogging heads editors will divide it up into subjects as if we planned the subject headings. But I think actually it's a pretty good lesson. We hit all the main points. I think we answered Simone. This is, this, I, this represents me. I can certainly say that. Okay. Uh, we don't have any solutions though. That's what people are going to say. Oh, you want to do one about solutions? Want that to be next? <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, yeah. I, yeah. I do. I, I think what I know some do? of what's yeah. in your in your uh, uh, quiver uh, <laughs> the on the solutions. And I'm not going to preempt that. I, I, I can imagine that. <laughs> but that'll be an interesting discussion. 
So we don't yeah. disagree enough, John. Do you, do you think we need to find something we can argue about? On this, no, and partly because we do disagree on that it's Omar. You hate Omar, the rioter. I, I sympathize with Omar. I think Omar is part of something larger than himself. We disagree very much on that. Omar makes you angry. Omar makes me sad. That's, that's a, a difference. Um, that's well put. But no, no, we could argue, but we could also just try to make sense of something. I think we can do that together as much as we can do by fighting, despite the fact that people like to see disagreement. Okay. Well, I think we've had a conversation here, John, and I appreciate your time. We uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Christmas That's is right. coming. Thanksgiving yeah. is coming. Yeah, I speak to you now from Essex, Connecticut. We'll talk about why some other time, but yes. Yeah. Sounds good. I am having a party at my house tonight, and I'm uh, very much looking forward to it. The Jazz Listeners yeah. Club of Providence, Rhode Island. Oh, I was going to say we sound so elitist, but no, that's okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's a bunch of guys that smoke cigars and drink whiskey and listen to jazz music and try to outdo each other with their tracks. You know, no, no, I got one better than that. Wait a minute, let me put mine on. You know, they come armed you know, with their when CDs. I go, when I go downstairs, one thing that's going to be going on is I'll be playing cabaret piano and accompanying a, a very pregnant and very good soprano singer. That is the circumstances I'm in. So we're both. Oh, gonna be that's making music. wonderful. That sounds that's, really that's great. Going to make yeah, some music. So, and there'll be whiskey involved in that, too. So, yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, my friend, I'm going to call it quits here. Uh, until next time, take care. You too, Glenn. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.